actually physically does the whole effort from A to Z. So manasa, vacha, karmana. When you put your whole senses, all your senses, all your mind into that act of having a relationship, then that is ritual. Now that ritual universe has to be reinstated in order to have a culturally beautiful, happy India. I begin with a small Mangala Charan in praise of Shiva. Ganga Taranga Ramani Jata Kalapam Gauri Nirantara Vibhu Shetopama Bhagam Narayana Priyam Ananga Madapaharam Varanasi Purapatim Bhaja Vishwanatha. So we all seek the blessings of the Lord of Varanasi, Bhagavan Shiva. And we begin today's uh, adventure. I'm going to talk to you about my book. Uh, this is the book. It was shown the cover. You see here, it's called India, a cultural decline or revival. And it has two women on it. One, a city woman and the other, a village woman. And uh, it's a photograph I took myself uh, somewhere in the woods of Orissa. And it reflects uh, really the repository, yes, the repository of uh, India, because women make up India. And uh, then we have women from cities, because India consists today of city, a huge number of middle class. And India has people living in villages and so much of the city today is inhabited by village people. Unfortunately, the village part of India has been neglected all these years because uh, Jawaharlal Nehru had planned everything for India under the Soviet model, which was concentrating on the city unlike uh, what his mentor um, Gandhiji would have liked. This is, that is to say that concentrating on developing India, which is in the villages. So in spite of all the socialism and communism and all kinds of theories about Daridra Narayan and Ram Rajya and whatever, we have not been able to take care of where our India resides, that is the gram or the villages. Now this book of mine, India, Cultural Decline or Revival, poses a question. Is India undergoing a big cultural decline? Is it going to disappear from the face of earth as a great civilization, largely as a Hindu civilization? Or after another struggle in the 20th and the 21st century, 
after independence, is it going to be a reassertion of an ancient way of life that traces back its history to at least 7,000 years ago? So that's the question that I put forth. Now, when most people analyze India, when uh, they talk about uh, something very fashionable, like the idea of India, <laughs> you must have heard this phrase, idea of India, and several people have written books about it and articles about it. And there are famous people who mention idea of India. Uh, everybody says, this is my idea of India. Uh, then we talk about India only in terms of Western sociology. That is, what are the classes? What are the religions? Uh, what are the languages? And uh, what are the majority people? What are the minority people? What is the balance between the ethnic groups? Uh, who are poor, who are less poor, who are very poor? Who are people who are native and who are people who are foreigner or represented by values of a foreign civilization? So this is the way the modern sociology along with modern anthropology uh, analyzes things. And, and as you know, uh, this is largely the way the colonizers analyze the colonies in terms of what is called ethnography. Graphy, you know, is painting or making a scene or making a picture and ethnos is a tribe or a jati. It's a Greek word, ethnos, and there were many ethnoi or many tribes in ancient uh, Athens who lived there. And uh, it is from there that this term came into modern discourse where people started describing a set of people who had a particular religion, language, features, physical features, dress, clothing, etc. All their way of life together, all the details about it, and that makes up the ethnography of the people or the identity of the people. And the best example for uh, ethnography of people world over is found not in any university website, but it is found on the website of uh, a Christian organization called the Joshua Project or the unreached people uh, where uh, the Christians who want to proselytize uh, the unchristian people of the world, where they have made a map of all kinds of people who live all over the world. And it's something you should go and see in order to understand how they work, and also for your own information. Then they have divided the whole world into two segments. Those people who have been converted or half converted to Christianity and those who have not been touched so far or who have not converted and who are waiting to be saved, like Hindus and Muslims and uh, people from tribal areas, etc. So that site exemplifies 
the net result of how the Western world thinks. They think of the non-Western worlds in terms of a people whose lives have to be changed, whose lives have to be saved, whose lives have to be altered, controlled, for whatever reason, religious reasons, consumerist reasons, business reasons, military reasons, no matter what, but that's the approach. And according to that, the Western civilizations made their uh, systems of study, systems of study for the people of Africa and Asia and Australia, etc. And of course, we Indians. So this is the way our academics, uh, our Sunil Khilnani's and Shashi Tharoor's and all these people, they just study India along those lines, purely Western paradigm. Now I have brought in something very different. How do you look at society? How do you look at humankind? How do you look at humankind anywhere? and especially in India. So for that, I have a different parameter. And this parameter comes from a verse which is found in the Mahabharata. Now this verse talks about what a person should do. And belonging to a particular sect not an ethnographic sect, but belonging to a particular section of existence, a particular area of life, how should a person react? So what they say in Mahabharat, the shloka is something like this. Ekam tyajet kulasyarathe. Ekam tyajet kulasyarathe. For the sake of Kula or the family, you should give up the interest of the individual. The interest of the family is higher than the interest of the individual. Ekam Tyajet Kulasyarthe. For the sake of Gram, Gram means a village, a city these days, a village city or a huge habitation. So the village or the city or the habitat is higher. The interest of that is higher than that of the Kula or the family. So individual, family, and habitat or gram, three things we have now. Ekam tyajet kulasyarthe, gram arthe kulam tyajet. Gramam tyajet janapadasyarthe. For the sake of janapad, janapad could mean a huge region or maybe even a modern nation. For the sake of the interest of Janapad, 
you should give up the interest of the town or the village or the habitat. The interest of the nation is bigger than that. And finally, finally he says, ekam tyajet kulasyarthe, gramarthe kulam tyajet, gramam tyajet janapadasyarthe, atma arthe prithvim tyajet. And for the sake of atma or atma or self, not the individual, the atma, the spiritual self, you give up the whole earth. So now there are six entities or six divisions. Ek, individual, kul, family, gram or town, janapat or the large area or the nation, prithvi, the earth, the globe, the mother earth, and finally, Atma. Atma is the Jeevatma, the individual, which is other than the physical individual with a name like Bharat or Atpana or uh, Shruti or somebody. So these are the six entities which make up existence everywhere. And this is not describing India. This is not an idea of India. This is an idea of existence, human existence. And Mahabharata is talking about that, that the interest of Atma is the highest, the individual is the lowest, and these are the categories in between. And I have tried to analyze modern India in terms of these six categories and modern India, which I have seen through my own eyes. I was born 1946. And since 1955, with uh, the blessings of the Almighty, I still remember everything, at least remembered when I wrote this book. So I know everything that happened in India from 1955 when Chacha Nehru gave the great speech for one hour in Ramlila grounds in 1957, after when 100 years of the first uh, rebellion against the British had uh, concluded, you know, 100 years uh, celebration. So from that turning point in Indian history, modern Indian history till, let us say the present time, till the Kisan Andolan, which is happening on our streets right now, I remember. And I have in this book tried to put everything. This book was published in 2008, but uh, things have not changed since then. Last 12 years, there has only been change of political power, but uh, there has not been any substantial change uh, within the country in terms of culture. So these six things, are the categories through which I analyze modern India. It is very different from Nehru's idea of India, palimpsest, karma aate gaye, Hindustan banta gaya, that we are a set of people who are a product of all the invaders who came from the Aryans and then the Indo-Greeks and the, the Greeks and 
then the Huns and the Kushanas and the uh, Arab Arabs and uh, all those people downwards. So that we are a palimpsest culture, that we are a sandwich culture or a hotel culture, uh, you know, where everybody finds a place to stay and everybody starts calling India their own. They became one of us as one of the great secularists is never tired of saying that all these people, they came from outside, but they became one of us. Of course, there can't be a greater lie than that. Otherwise, why should have India been partitioned in 1947 if they became one of us? It's so simple. Now, coming to the specifics, what do I do? I have divided this book in three parts. Each part has two parts. Uh, along the same, Ek, Kul, Gram, Janapat, Prithvi and Atma. So out of the three parts, today I'm going to speak on Eka and Kula. Then in the next lecture, I will speak on Gram and Janapad. You see how the Janapad is the other. And then in part three, I will speak on Prithvi and Atma. So obviously Prithvi and Atma would be a purely philosophical discourse. It will talk about Indian diaspora. It will talk about metaphysical issues, uh, the issues that are philosophies that are domineering the world today. In part two, I will talk about uh, the villages, the small cities, the social problems, the reservation, uh, Varanashram problems, politics of compensation, etc., uh, language. And today, the first part, I will speak about something very significant, a little sophisticated, uh, but most essential. I will talk about purely cultural issues, the universe of Indian thought, the ritual universe, then education in India, which has been now for almost 170 years without art, you know, totally without art. Then uh, the uh, total neglect, as a matter of fact, uh, castigation of Sanskrit, which is the soul of all Indian thought and languages. Then the conflict between Abrahamic religions and Hinduism. And then the disappearance of the teacher from our society. I mean, we have schools by hundreds and thousands of schools and teachers in them, but teacher, the guru, though the one who had a personal relationship and responsibility with the learner in India, that is not there. And then I'll talk about the aspirations of modern Indians. And I don't have very complimentary things to say there because I describe the modern Indian as a rampant consumerist. He reminds me more of the mythological Yayati who took away the youth of his son 
and he reminds me more of Kansas because Kansa was the one who liked to kill and blot out the next generation. And then I will also last in the, in the end talk about how we have given up the whole notion of uh, giving up or tiyag or working for something which is much higher than our mundane concerns. So let's begin now with what is called the ritual universe. Now, secularism in India started with castigating Hinduism and Hinduism here means something very broad. Uh, it just doesn't mean uh, Vaishnavas and Vaidic uh, followers or those who do yagyas or go to temples, uh, the so-called Vaidic people. No, uh, I would say the people of India as a whole with indigenous relations, uh, religions, uh, which includes Jains and Bauddhas and Pashupatas and all denominations of people and all philosophy. Uh, they followed what was called for enlightenment, for understanding, for knowledge, they believed that you had to perform ritual. That life is nothing unless you do not perform rituals. Now, what happens in the 19th century is that Christianity comes along and it starts teaching us that all ritual is nonsense. You see, this was the Christian bias. This is the way they approach the Greek, ancient Greek culture and Greek religion. When Christianity came to Greece, they said, no, this is a false religion. It's lost in ritual. It is lost in worship of gods in temples, in offering sacrifices, in <coughs> celebrating elaborate uh, festivals in having all kinds of gatherings in which people bring in the gods and spend time with them. So they said, all oh, this is wrong. This is erroneous. This is devilish. This is how they taught the Greeks. And they slowly, over a period of two, three to 400 years, they wiped out the ancient Greek culture because they said this is false, this is devilish, this is away from truth. And then they established the Christian empire uh, very solidly by fourth or fifth century, which lasted for almost eight to 900 years. And then when the Turks came in, uh, it fell. Now, the same thing was attempted by Christians in India in 19th century. So they said that uh, Hinduism is all caught in empty ritual, in rituals which are very uh, erroneous, uh, which are highly sensuous, uh, which have too much uh, uh, sex in it, uh, you know, like dancing in temples and uh, women wearing beautiful dresses, etc. So it was a very 
severe form of Protestant Christianity, which talked about uh, God in the heaven as pure God who had to be followed, whose commandments had to be followed, and men had to become good and spiritual and uh, elevated by thinking of him as somewhere up in the heavens. This was the paradigm they gave. Now, Indians who were at that time fully in the grip of the British uh, Empire, they succumbed to this intimidation. And we developed a whole theory where, oh, oh, we are also very pure people. You know, we are Vedic people. So we had Arya Samaj, we said, Yes, yes, uh, all worship of Murtis and Vigrahas and going to temple is uh, Pakhanda, it is wrong. So Dayanand Saraswati uh, went around the country telling people that this is something which is not part of the Veda and your pure religion, your pure religion is doing Yajna and you, so you should do Yajna. And we believe in one God, we don't believe in many gods. And that one God is Parampita Parmeshwar as he translated it into Hindi. So when he would translate uh, any verse of uh, the Vedas, like uh, the very first word, uh, verse of the mantra rather, Agni Mede Purohitam, then uh, he will translate Agni as Parampita Parmeshwar. I desire the Supreme Lord Parampita. The word Agni is, is uh, thrown out, you know. So this was the great intimidation which happened to Indian thinkers, contemporary Indian thinkers. And then from Arya Samaj along with it, we had all kinds of Brahmo Samaj, Dev Samaj, uh, various other movements in Bengal who all emphasize that worship of a god or a Devi or a Kali or a Vishnu was superstitious, was backward and bad. So the educated class at that time uh, symbolized by, uh, you know, our uh, uh, Vivekananda, it denounced all that. And so it, so the young uh, Vivekananda, uh, he went to, he went to uh, the yogi and the worshipper of Kali, Ramakrishna, and he said, your God is false. It's only when Ramakrishna made him realize and gave him a darshan of Kali that he understood that his education under the British uh, from you know, whichever college he went to, perhaps presidency college at that time, was false. So there were very few people who understood this at even at the time of Vivekananda, and Vivekananda had to start a whole movement. And uh, then there were people like Sri Aurobindo, and later on several others who wanted to cure the newly educated 19th century Indian of their Protestant Christian prejudices brought into Hinduism. But 
they did not succeed fully. Somewhere they failed. They did not succeed because we had other leaders like Mahatma Gandhi, who again thought that ritual was not the right thing. You see this, this education of anti-ritual universe, that ritual is bad, went very deep and it is present to this day. To this day, we don't realize what is the value of our temples. Now ritual, briefly speaking, is an act of an act of knowledge, which is done by doing three things at the same time. By putting your mind, by putting your body, and by putting your speech into the same thing. Manasa, Vacha, Karmana, by man. So ritual means if I worship God, if I give bath to my Shiva, then I'm doing it just as a mother does it to the child or just as a loving wife does it to the husband or the other way around. It's, it's something with your mind in it, your relationship with your heart and mind in it, manasa, and then you speak just as a mother mutters very loving, kind words to the little infant. Similarly, the devotee sings praises in mantras, whether it is Vedic mantras or shlokas or music to the deity, to the person. And one does it through the body. One, one actually physically does the whole effort from A to Z. So manasa vacha karmana. When you put your whole senses, all your senses, all your mind into that act of having a relationship, then that is ritual. Now the Christians, of course, do it very partially. It's not as if the Christians don't do it. They have a service. They speak something in praise of Jesus. And they also follow rituals. They follow the ritual of Eucharist. That is, they give bread saying that this is the flesh of Jesus. Take it, partake it. They give wine saying that this is the blood of Jesus. So eat this bread and drink this wine so that Jesus enters you. So they have their rituals, but they say that our rituals are true rituals and the rituals of the heathens are false rituals. Now, Indians have internalized this to this day. That is why even a highly pro-Hindu government like that of Sri Narendra Modi is not able to free the temples from state control. Because there is an internal roadblock that you don't know the value of your own rituals. You don't know the value of your own temples. That's why you keep postponing it or dithering or just uh, uh, not thinking about it and just not thinking how valuable it is. Now that ritual universe has to be reinstated in order to have a culturally 
beautiful, happy India. Because all arts are part of that ritual. What else is drama? What else is painting? What else is poetry? It is making a ritual relationship with somebody else. What else is bhakti? So what we have done is we have developed a Protestant Hinduism for ourselves. Where people like Shashi Tharoor, you know, they only say, oh, you know, I'm this, I'm that, I can do this, I can do that. In, in, Hinduism gives me great variety. It has a marvelous intellectual fit, you know. But you don't do anything. When somebody asks you, do you go to the temple and spend time? Then you say no. I don't need to do it because Hinduism says do it or no, don't do it. I'm still a Hindu. So what do you do? Do you do mantra jap? Do you do asan pranayam? No, I do nothing. I just sit back and speculate and write books and talk about the idea of India. And I just talk about how the majority Hindus should treat the minority Muslims. And I talk about the tolerance of Hinduism. But practically, I will not do anything. Now, this is the biggest problem. All religions, which are not just religions of faith or belief, but religions of practice, whether it is the religion of African tribes, Australian tribes, American Indians, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Pashupatas, Vaishnavas, whatever, they all believe in a sadhana. They all believe in manasa, vacha, karmana, action. And the India which was created for us by Jawaharlal Nehru was totally bereft of this. Whatever India survived from ancient times and wanted these things to be done was looked down upon him. It was looked down upon by him by him. He looked down upon these things. He thought modernity was becoming more and more faith-like Christian or faith-like socialist. So you keep religion outside, more or less, you treat religion as if it's the opium of masses, as Marx said, and you have a secular life. Now that's what has caused the immense damage to Hinduism. And that is why you have an education system without arts. Now we all know that it was in, it was in 1835 or so, I think that Macaulay started this whole thing. Education, new education policy of the British times. And in that he did not want you to read philosophy or culture or arts or religion or anything. He just wanted you to read uh, mathematics, uh, some bit of little bit of language and science so that you could be uh, second rate or third rate administrators under the white administrators. 
and that thing continued and a lot has been talked about it i need not waste my breath on that anymore but the crux of it is to this day no university in india no school in india considers arts as essential curriculum chauthi class mein bhi nahi hota आठवीं में नहीं होता दसवीं ग्यारहवीं बारहवीं में नहीं होता फर्स्ट ईयर ऑफ कॉलेज एम ए कुछ नहीं देर आर नो डिपार्टमेंट्स ऑफ आर्ट नो डिपार्टमेंट्स ऑफ थिएटर पेंटिंग स्कल्पचर एनीथिंग बिकॉज आर्ट इज कंसिडर्ड एज समथिंग नॉन इसेंशियल टू ए मॉडर्न इंडियन वे ऑफ लाइफ एंड आर्ट along with philosophy and religion has been categorized as hindu and therefore it is unacceptable because modern india should discard everything hindu now when you don't have arts then your administrators your ias ifs your judiciary your professors your judges they all become unfamiliar with the practices and the lives of the people of the country and so when they pass judgments in the courts or when they give directives as executive officers they always go against the real needs of the people and cause endless conflicts they operate along the colonial model the model of the 19th century governance which was which was a colonial model so the ritual universe education without art and total lack of establishing sanskrit as the essential repository of indian learning so because you wanted a secular state so you could not have a language like sanskrit as the fulcrum of education in india you couldn't have it because it was categorized as a hindu language now i'll take an a, a parallel you go to the modern greek state the present uh, hellenic republic democratic hellenic republic modern greece uh modern greece preserves greek as the fulcrum of its culture they don't say this greek is pre-christian all all most uh, greeks today are christians there is nobody who follows the religion of apollon or zeus or uh, hera or uh, Uh, any other ancient gods uh, god so they are all modern christians but they preserve their language and because they preserve their language they preserve modern greek medieval greek and ancient greek through the language they preserve their identity as culture so they are reconstructing the temple of athena for the last 100 years they removed the church which was there they removed the mosque which was there do you know that at parthenon 
they removed both of them because when the Christians invaded, they broke down portions of the ancient temple of Athena and they put in the put in a uh, church there. And when the Muslims came, they put in a mosque there. So when modern Greeks who are not Christian, who are Christians, who are not followers of ancient Olympian religion, what did they do? They removed both of them. And they have started reconstructing the ancient temple of Athena made in 600 BC as it was and making every effort to restore it. So they have an identity which goes back to their history. Whereas in India, the story is exactly the other way around. You, we know the whole struggle of Ram Mandir, no point in my saying anything about it. But then there, are, there is the struggle of thousands of other temples waiting to be taken care of. But the point I'm driving at is very simple. That we have not taken a native model of culture. We have taken a colonial model of culture. And no political party in India to this day, I dare say, has given up that colonial model and restored in letter and spirit the native, the Bharatiya model. Along with this, there is the big problem of proselytization. We all know that. Unfortunately, for the last one week, the television is full of several very unpleasant uh, news and developments on this front. Now, we have not been able to understand something very simple about Christianity and Islam, that they are proselytizing religions. They are not religions which treat any other religion, not just of India, but of the world on an equal footing. They do not believe in equality of religions, equality of philosophies, equality of experience. They believe in exclusiveness. And so they believe in proselytizing and converting the rest of the world to their sect, to their sampradaya. And they are they're living in that pramad of the sampradaya, in that arrogance. So Christians would like to convert the whole world to Christianity. Muslims would like to convert the whole world to Islam. And there they would be in a conflict with whatever other faith or religion or cultural uh, commitment people have, which does not fall in, which is something different from Islam and Christianity. Now, this is something we have to realize. Now, we made a model in which we said that Muslims and Christians who are part of Indian population will have certain rights. And in Article 25, we said that everybody would have the right to uh, profess, practice, and propagate. Unfortunately, 
about the last word propagate, there has been no clarity. Should propagate mean convert? Or should it only mean talk about it? I can talk about the beauty, the glory, the goodness of the faith that I live, that I profess and practice. But does that give me the right to tell others that you will go to hell and that you need to be saved? That is something prima facie inhuman. And so the constitution has somewhere or the other fallen short of this clarity. And Article 25 needs to be amended now. We have to make it very clear and that propagation does not mean insulting others, belittling other faiths and using unfair means, using means of uh, means of bribery or um, unfair means of converting people into your faith. So this is one of the major issues. And this has been spelled for a hundred years very clearly as one of the major problems of India. The next thing that I want to talk about is the teacher. You see, the ancient Indian system till the arrival of the British was based upon a direct relationship of the student with the teacher. Of course, the student was located in an institution, whether that institution was a gurukul, you know, a small gurukul of 10 teachers or 100 teachers or a university of uh, 2000 teachers or 3000 teachers like Odantashila or Nalanda. But the relationship was always based upon an individual Acharya and the and the student or the Batuka as he was called, the one who was studying the student. It was the duty of that particular teacher to take into his fold the student, not only for the period of study, but for the whole life. And it was the duty of the teacher to, of the student to regard the teacher as the, as the guide for rest of his life. And it was not just one teacher you had, you could have five teachers, 10 teachers, and most brilliant people had several teachers. As the story of the Tatreya goes, he had 18 teachers. But it was always a deep personal relationship of lifelong commitment. That you had to give something to the student. You were not just there to uh, draw a salary or serve in an institution. Now what the British did, the British came and they established a modern college in which the head was a principal who was appointed by the government. It was very different 
from the head of the teaching institution who was elected or who was decided upon as a teacher by the institution. The institution, whatever that institution may be and whatever may be the uh, special subject taught at that Gurukul. But the head of the Gurukul was somebody who was elected, chosen, decided upon by other four, five, 10, 20 Upadhyayas or teachers. And it was an independent unit. The independent unit functioned under the state, but not under the directives of the state. It was given funding by the people, it was sustained by the people. The teacher, the head teacher and the teachers, they were the ones who decided what would be taught, how it would be taught, what will be the subjects, how can I make this particular subject? Suppose if I'm teaching Vedanta, then how, how would I teach Vedanta best? Or if I'm teaching, let us say, uh, Arthashastra, then how would I teach it best? This was the job of the teacher. The state would not interfere. The state would not make the syllabus. Now with the British, the things changed. So the teacher became, what did the teacher became? He became a state servant. He became somebody who served under the state. और हिंदी में कहें तो वो टीचर से क्या हो गया फटीचर वो टीचर से फटीचर हो गया और आज तक फटीचर ही है चाहे स्कूल का टीचर है चाहे कॉलेज का टीचर है चाहे यूनिवर्सिटी का वाइस चांसलर है क्योंकि वो इंडिपेंडेंट नहीं है दिस वाज द बिगेस्ट चेंज दैट केम अबाउट इन द 19th सेंचुरी and we have not been able to understand this and work out our independent systems. And unless we revive the ancient system in spirit, in organization, not in dress code and uh, um, syllabus and other things, because all that has to change with time, but in the spirit that teacher would be the one who will decide, not the education minister. Because it was presumed that the teacher is without doubt, he is nishanka. He is without any confusion. Now, unless you restore that, you will not have independence of the teacher. So what you have actually now state policies regarding education where it is the secular state or the religious state or whatever state which treats education as a medium of propaganda of teaching people young people a particular narrative about the identity of society about their identity and everything it's a state-sponsored structure. It is a state-sponsored ideology. It is not the individual thinker. That's why in India we had this massive variety. 
people would go to a gurukul study for a while they'd be sent from there to another gurukul to go to another teacher and <clears throat> when they started earning when they came back and became a grahastha then they would support their institution their alma mater for rest of their life by donations it was not a system that you take loans and study it's very different from the modern capitalist system so this it was the loss of the teacher and that's why in this book my fifth chapter is bring back the teacher now i come to the family the kula what is the kula what has gone wrong with the kula what has gone wrong with the kula is something very essential essentially different what we are teaching is rampant consumerism the family is involved in earning money first and last our values of life are no longer dharma no longer kama as artistic as beautiful and no longer moksha the ancient idea of dharma artha kama and moksha has not translated into some kind of a modern practice but we have only consumption consumption kama 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 it's a consumerist society so we tell children when they are in nursery that you will become a successful money maker so in one decade the successful money maker is a chartered accountant another decade he is an engineer and third decade a uh, decade he may be somebody else but we teach the child boy or girl that they have to be a material success we don't teach any human values and the society has very little time to have a relationship between parent and children so what you end up doing is you don't think about the future or even the present of the children it's no longer a family in which children are the center of attention they are given attention enough to be successful in worldly terms to make a career to pass exams and to earn more money neither the education system nor the family is concerned with anything else and hence the family ends up becoming somebody that consumes the children themselves if you want to talk in mythological terms in puranic terms then the family becomes a kamsa the family becomes a yayati you know yayati was a man who lived his life and when he was about to die or old age came to him then he said to his son that give me your youth and he took the youth of his son so what does it mean that you give some values such values to your children that they are not able to lead their life of creativity and freedom that they are not able to grow 
that they fall into a groove. And sometimes you don't let them, you don't let them replace you. Like we find today that the oldest of the politician loves to keep sitting in Luton's Delhi. Even if he has retired as the Prime Minister of India, he would still like to live in Luton's Delhi and manipulate as ex-Prime Minister. I'm not making a reference to some single individual. This is the trend now. What does it mean? It means that you don't want the younger generation to be free. You see, this is again the Kansa syndrome because Kans didn't want children to be born to his sister. He couldn't have children. His sister could have children, but he would kill the children of his sister. Why? Because one of them was supposed to replace him. Now the next generation is supposed to replace you. If you can't accept that, if you don't have that affection, that vatsalya, then you are kans. So Hindu society, very soon after independence, under Nehru socialism, acquired this characteristics of consumerism which has produced yayatis and kansas. Massive, horrible corruption, power struggle, total departure from arts and higher values and culture. This is the life we are still living at the social and cultural level. And when this happens, then this becomes a national syndrome. It is not only the bureaucrats and the judges and the politicians who behave this way, but even those people who say that they are involved with religious pursuit, the madhadishas, the sannyasis, the keepers of the ashram, people who have taken upon themselves the spiritual orders, they also behave the same way because the whole idea of giving up, the idea of giving up is abandoned, but the idea of acquiring. So we have now the ancient sannyas system, which in the ashramas has converted our ashramas into some kind of uh, money spinning organizations. And organizations which are not able to bring about the social change for the simple reason that the concept of giving up or sannyasa is now missing. Because it is only when that concept of giving up, giving up power, giving up influence, giving up social uh, status, when that concept is lived that you have real ascetic plane of life, and then you make a contribution to society, 
without any self-interest and you are able to provide guidance to all those who have not experienced life in its proper depth and variety. That is the part one of my book and now I shall welcome questions. And, uh, we already have a couple of remarks, many remarks in the chat box. One of them is, why are Hindus so gullible? We have had a collapse of education system for a very long time. Our educational institutions were either wiped out or reduced to dust. Uh, at least they could not survive in the cities because most cities under Islamic occupation did not offer them any substantial financial aid. They wouldn't. Why would they offer that to kafirs? So most of these institutes were outside the city as ashramas and they, they were for sadhana and religious purposes, dharmic ashramas. They were no longer academic, pure academic places. So we have had a lack of pure academic places for eight to 900 years. Whatever has survived has survived as uh, exception to the rule. You know, some agrahara somewhere, so of course there have been scholars and academics and people who have preserved manuscripts and done study. But their, their quantity, their numbers, they are very few as compared to what is needed for this whole big country and what used to be before 1200 AD. You see the number of education, educational institutes, the number of uh, centers of learning that we had, it was, it was immense. I will quote Tariq Fateji, who was asked the same question by somebody that why don't Hindus wake up uh, in a different context, of course, not culturally, but in a political context. And he said that Hindus are very, um, you may say, he didn't use the words, but very narrow thinkers. They, they feel, he said in Hindi, they don't think about the community at all. What's he caring? Because this is what I said a minute ago, that you want to teach some very, uh, very limited values. Money-making is what you want to do. And I think Tariq Fateh is right because it's, it's a fact. Anybody who opens his eyes and sees the practice of Hindus uh, for the last uh, 50 years, he would just see this. So, I am point of view hai by Dr. Radhika. Um, she says that uh, See, political terms. It's not just a matter of uh, favoring a Muslim invader or uh, favoring uh, even today 
Mehbooba Mufti uh, saying something uh, regarding uh, Pakistan, you know, that why should Pakistan not sit on the table to decide the future of Kashmir? It's not just that. It is a national drawback in which you don't have the proper education to understand what is valuable in life. You see, there are values in life and you have a priority set. Aap अपने आदर्शों को बताते हैं उन आदर्शों में कौन से ज्यादा वैल्यू के हैं जब आप यह जानते हैं तब फिर गद्दार कम होंगे होंगे तो थोड़े बहुत जरूर क्योंकि मनुष्य की कमियां हमेशा रहेंगी लेकिन तब कम होंगे वो सब शिक्षा के कारण होता है वो पढ़ाया नहीं गया और आज भी हम नहीं पढ़ा रहे और जब ग्रेट अपॉर्चुनिटी आई इंडिपेंडेंस में तब उसको उल्टा कर दिया गया तब हमने रशियन मॉडल लिया तब हमने वेस्टर्न मॉडल लिया वैल्यूज अलग ली हमने वैल्यूज ऑफ सैक्रिफाइस नहीं ली हमने ये सिखाया स्कूल में कि अपने साथी को कोनी मार के पीछे कर दो और तुम आगे बढ़ जाओ नंबर ले लो हमने ये नहीं सिखाया कि हम अपना अपना ज्ञान उसके साथ शेयर करें किसी वो ऑल ओवर द वर्ल्ड पर्टिकुलरली इन इंडिया the senior student would always teach the junior student preliminary knowledge hamesha senior student junior ko deta tha aur aisa duniya bhar mein hota tha aur bharat mein to specific manner mein hota tha to humne wo sharing nahi sikhai kyunki humne ek highly consumerist model liya aur fir usko kahin jama pehna diya socialism ka equality ka so we we created no equality in in this uh, nation we only created some people who are more equal than others aap samajh rahe hain more equal than others ki bhai hamare special rights hain equal to hum hain lekin hamare kuch aise rights hain jo make me elevated to you so seeking an elevation seeking special treatment this has become a feature of the indian mind not just the hindu mind and you find this in the society total sadak par bhi log preference chalenge lal batti laga ka parliament mein bhi unki preferential rights honge as members of parliament you see we are giving special rights to everybody we are making everybody more equal than others to aisa to non democratic periods mein bhi bharat mein nahi tha kyunki dharm ke aage law ke aage sab equal the one last uh, again corollary to the same uh, thing we are talking about avesh ji says without free hindu temples it will be impossible for hindus to set up their own education system independent from the state देखिए यहां दो बातें एक तो एजुकेशन सिस्टम स्टेट का होगा ही अंडर मॉडर्न टाइम्स और पहले भी द स्टेट यूज टू गिव अ लॉट ऑफ हेल्प टू वॉट एवर एजुकेशन सिस्टम वॉज मेंटेन बाय द पीपल एंड द एजुकेशनिस्ट एंड द एजुकेटेड क्लास राइट पहले भी स्टेट बहुत हैवी 
उनको सपोर्ट देता था सारी सपोर्ट नहीं देता था लेकिन काफी सपोर्ट देता था बल्क ऑफ द सपोर्ट केम फ्रॉम द लोकल कम्युनिटी बट द स्टेट सपोर्ट इन मॉडर्न इंडिया वी हैव टू हैव टू टीयर्स ऑफ सपोर्ट एंड वी हैव ऑलवेज हैड इट आज आज से नहीं हमेशा से थी एक स्टेट का सिस्टम था फॉर्मल एजुकेशन का गुरुकुलों का यूनिवर्सिटी का था और साथ में मंदिरों का मंदिर जो थे देवर हिंदू मंदिर्स वर ग्रेट सेंटर्स ऑफ एजुकेशन ग्रेट सेंटर्स ऑफ आर्ट ऑफ डांस ऑफ म्यूजिक ऑफ लर्निंग ऑफ पोइट्री ऑफ स्कल्पचर कोई विद्या नहीं थी जो वहां प्रेजेंट नहीं थी और जिसके स्पेशलिस्ट को वहां से कुछ फिनेंशियल और सब्सटेंशियल सपोर्ट नहीं मिलता सो हिंदू टेम्पल्स वर नॉट जस्ट फॉर प्रेयर्स दे वर नॉट जस्ट फॉर गैदरिंग प्लेसेस दे वर नॉट जस्ट फॉर ए पोलिटिकल सरमन दे वर फॉर ए कल्चर लाइफ इन विच यू थॉट अबाउट all aspects of your life and in which all kinds of arts and skills found a refuge sustenance milti thi to sanskrit ke pandit bhi hote the asthan vidwan bhi hote the sangeetkar bhi hote the nartakiyan bhi hoti thi pakhavaj bajane wale hote the phool malaye bechne wale hote the kapde banane wale hote the जो सब मंदिर में कुछ ना कुछ कर रहे थे जो मंदिर में आने वालों को प्रोवाइड करते थे भगवान को की सेवा में सब इस तरह से लगे थे सो इट वाज अ प्लेस विच प्रोवाइडेड इकोनॉमी इकोनॉमिक सका टू ऑल लेवल्स ऑफ पीपल नाउ व्हाई कांट दिस हैपन अगेन व्हाई इज दैट नॉन सेक्युलर आई एम गिविंग माई मनी टू टेम्पल एंड आई वॉन्ट that it should be used for culture so what is wrong for with it why should the state take away that money hundi ko utha ke kyon le jaye aur wo public exchequer mein chala jaye aur ek ias officer us mandir ko run kare jisko shayad ek bhartiya bhasha bhi dhang se nahi aati ho aur angrezi to zyada tar unki tooti phooti hoti hai umar guzar jati hai wo ek एक पैराग्राफ में भी दो चार गलतियां करते हैं आई नो दिस बिकॉज आई हैव प्रोड्यूस्ड डजन ऑफ देम एज ए टीचर एट डेली यूनिवर्सिटी मैंने सैकड़ों को इम्तान पास करवाए हैं आई के तो वो कारण क्या है कि हमने एक सिस्टम बनाया है जिसमें रिटर्न्स बड़े पुअर होंगे हमेशा एंड वी हैव टू ऑल्टर दैट सिस्टम right here you mentioned something uh not central to your discourse but still i think it's important the language question with western ways of looking at things either christian or secularist and yes. so hinduism is losing ground because of whatever i hear of new developments in the field of education keep on making it worse and worse like yes. this new education policy 
you know, is making a little note to the vernaculars, but essentially it is corroborating the dominance of English. What do you say as a man of the field? Uh, you know, what I would have to say is this. If you bring back the Indian arts, and I am saying arts, not worrying about Islamic or Buddhist or this or that, because arts are living forms. If you bring them into education right from the first class and you, let us say, teach till at least class eight or nine, some two or three arts in a practical way in every school in India, not just exclusive schools, but every school in India, this kind of a dissociation with Hindu thought and culture would disappear. Because, and you should teach those arts in the language and the activity of that particular region. So if the school is in, let us say, Bhubaneswar or uh, Katak, then all that you, you should teach those arts, you should teach what is being lived there by the people. You shouldn't worry about an all India phenomena and things like that. And secondly, I think, I mean, my idea of education is very radical. Instead of talking a lot about uh, change in terms of skill, why not make it compulsory that every school in India from class six to class seven, uh, 12 for seven years teaches one particular skill to everybody in that school so that when the girl or the boy who passes out at uh, you know finishing the 12th class is able to earn something so you you can have motor mechanics you can have computer uh, repairers you can have 150 to 200 such skills and every school should teach at least one skill and that should be compulsory for everybody. And I'm sure that with modern technology, you can do it up to the level of what is called ITI. Not IIT, ITI. So that you can produce really skilled people. So with these two fundamental things, of course, this would require an a, a big investment in the educational field. Maybe it would require 20% of our national uh, GDP or what, but it would have immense returns. And let everything be more regional than centered. Of course, controlled by the center, organized by the center, supervised by the center, but expression and learning should be at the level of the region. And so people will learn the languages more. As for English, I would say that if it is compulsory for every bureaucrat to know at least two Indian languages other than his or her mother tongue before entering the exam, and if that is a compulsory condition for uh, bureaucratic services, for judicial services, for academic services, this whole situation will change.
And once the Indian languages assert more, people will also accept Sanskrit in a bigger way because they'll realize that it is the most practical language. It's the easiest language for not national unity only, but for national interchange, all kinds of interchange. This is a very different kind of a thinking, but after my years and years of experience as a teacher, this is what I think. We should talk less and we should work something practical. I actually don't have questions, but I thought I would make some observations which might be um, instructive and useful to everyone. Uh, the point that you mentioned about the temples, you know, used to be used to be the center of art. And that. I think that is more true of the north, where, uh, as uh, Nirad Sitadri rightly uh, wrote, uh, that there has been a destruction of Aryavrat totally. Whereas in the south, the temples are very much following that. You know, it is a great honor for a girl to do her Arangetram, for example, in, in a noted temple. You know, they book the space. So there's a special sort of manchek hai, jahan pe, you know, performances hoti hai. Wo sab hai. The, the temples, the big temples have educational institutions as well attached to them, such as Tirupati and, and many other uh, larger temples. Which is not to say that everything all is well in the South with regard to temples. The same issue of the, you know, control of temples is, is a problem. But as a center of art, it, it uh, does continue. Um, so my point is that I know what you mean about the school and the, the teacher being important. But what I feel is also that the home and the family is where these um, cultural values have got to be imparted. And I'll give my own example. I, I grew up in uh, Bangalore and went to a Methodist school. Right? So school method, obviously, there is no uh, Bharati influence in that sense. But my father was very uh, keen. So from the age of six, I have learned um, classical music and Bharatanatyam and everything else up until just like what you were saying up until right about uh, 10th uh, standard or so so that naturally then uh, gives us a certain exposure event. and this is true actually in the south of people from most religions most of the people who are you know christians who are you know more forward looking they will they will be also uh, part of this because the whole ecosystem supports that in of the 10 years or so that i've lived in delhi what i've noticed is that yahan pe wo ecosystem nahi hai. Abhibhibo ecosystem is more, you know, veering towards this whole Urdu and I, I actually know uh, Punjabi families here who have all their children, like their three, three children, they're all given uh, Persian names. I'm like, you're Hindu, you know, <laughs> why do you have to give Persian names to all your children? Now, that is the sort of thing because that's sort of, um, there is a sort of more of a buy-in into that. So there's no pushback is what I observe in the North for these yeah. kind of uh, concepts to bring back our customs, you know, there's got a lot more to be done. There's got more art forms, like the South, even in the East, you know, there is more of an importance um, in learning uh, dance and music. In uh, So that sort of continues. Comparatively, our temples are preserving more art, but no temple in the South offers archana to the deva, to the devata through dance. You see, the still the act which the British made in 1935 or something that there'll be no dance in temples is still the legal situation. There is no uh, uh, temple in the south in which you really do a puja through dance. I mean, I have been to Jagannath Puri and talked to the uh, the head uh, administrator there and even to the vidwans. Just as the Pujari recites mantras, why should a dancer, 
why should two or three dancers not do it three times a day and they find it the idea they find it very disturbing so and this is true of south also you see there has been a very big divide of course people are preserving it better in south but then they are not able to do anything in the temples there because temples are in the hands of totally uh, hostile hostile christian islamic people so that, that's once at, it is removed at an all india basis you see the states will never liberate the temples it's only the parliament in new delhi which by bringing a central act and asking the supreme court of india to really examine the matter dispassionately that this can happen once that happens your temples in the south will become 10 times more 10 times more beautiful and productive and helpful to the poor people to the lower middle class because you would have the wealth and the system to do it and you won't have these uh, people like t and krishnan you know who go on creating uh, hostile uh, and very aseveric views about dance and about carnatic music because and also people should be asked to come and sing i mean i don't understand why even today like five musician young upcoming musicians cannot sing in the evening and do an archana if it is a rama temple then sing sing tyagaraja if it is a devi temple then sing muttu swami dikshita if it is a padmanabhan temple then sing swati tirunal it this can be done even now but because you have an administrator an ias and somebody who is anti hindu this cannot happen so i i take your point that yes we have a lot more preserved but let us preserve it and let it flower more it's our duty to make it flower more ji adds to it that uh, dance offering dance to the presiding deity in the temple is not allowed since the abolition of the devdasi act uh, so my question is pertaining to someone in their 20s who have their whole life ahead of them and uh, yeah we we acknowledge that there are these problems we have hijacked temples you know teachers are students of the government and the government has departed from the dharmic values we can totally understand that but uh, as an individual i am quite powerless i mean i can't and as an individual i can't bring about these changes and i'm torn between problems such as managing my finances or aesthetics so someone in my someone in 20s we have to make sure that we have a stable job if we don't have that we can neither contribute to our aesthetics nor we can have a you know nice life so in that case where do you see this going so is the best case situation for us to settle elsewhere you know outside india and maybe bring your culture with yourself so should hindus become the next jews or you know what what should an individual do an individual hindu do in such situation no hindus cannot follow the example of jews secondly there is no need for hindus to do that i mean we have a billion of them right here they should simply take control of their own land whatever land uh, they have control of now so uh, of course they should learn from the jews 
uh, how to revive. Uh, Jews can teach us and how to defend and also how to attack when necessary. So this, those are very essential things you can learn from Jews. Right now, Jews are not uh, anti-idolatry. Uh, I have had talks with some of their very deepest scholars like uh, Rabbi Sparbar and all that uh, at the instance of Swami Dayanand Saraswati for four or five days. We have to work our own way. All we need is a little bit of courage because you are not demanding anything unfair, unjust, because you are not robbing anybody of, any, of anything else. Even if you are asking some fanatic Muslims to behave, then you are only asking them to mind their own ways, not to interfere. So Hindus, because they have in the whole ecosystem, lost their courage and political parties have not been able to restore them. So they must now on their own stand up and ask and ask the political parties also to deliver. We have everything. We have even people who are willing to sacrifice. It's just a matter of creating that uh, momentum. And that momentum has not been created because somewhere or the other, our leadership is too preoccupied with Gandhiism or with certain Arya Samaj values or with certain uh, funky reformist ideas about Hinduism. They still think that Hinduism is to be reformed like uh, Brahmo Samaj used to do it. So you have to exorcise yourself of that a Christian ghost. It's not a holy ghost. It's a very ecumenical uh, organizational ghost, which has entered you in order to make you uh, incapable of defending yourself. I have for a long time wanted how we can uh, inculcate uh, pride in the common man for our country, like China has done in last 20-30 years. This is the first part. I studied the minority institutions in the country. Now my suggestion is, and you can make it more focused, that until there is a social pressure uh, of individuals, on the political parties, whether BJP or anyone else, to free the temples by bringing the rot which has come in by the administrators and how it can be better as they were earlier. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. These are very crucial things that you have pointed out. Now, regarding the first, you see, whether we admit it or not, our common man is a highly oppressed man. And because he is oppressed, even as a Muslim, even as a Christian, and of course, as a Hindu, he is. He is oppressed by the bureaucracy. He is oppressed by the politician. He is oppressed by the judiciary. And 
unless you bring about some very major changes in the powers of all these three you see these people are oppressive because they have special powers too many special powers and once you start questioning them it is time to question why should the politician have all these advantages in the name of democracy that he or she can cross the floor any time bring down an elected 10 mps bring down an elected government the law should change see these are some of the major flaws in our democratic practices this is something which is going to bring sucker to the common man also we have given too much uh, protection to the bureaucrat a an ips officer or an ias officer can just about do anything wrong you make you suffer for a lifetime and he gets no punishment you see he can suspend you wrongly and you can go on fighting in courts and after 20 years you get something he is not blamed he is not pulled so there is a lot that has to be changed now in terms of the service condition relationship of the bureaucracy the judiciary and the administration vis-a-vis -vis the common man so this is my answer regarding the rights of the common man we keep talking about freedom freedom but we are not really providing any freedom regarding the temple i think sir uh, they have to be handed over back to hindus now many people have uh, created several models uh, people like tr ramesh and uh, those who are experienced in this i myself have a long years and years of experience in temple management and construction and i have made suggestions it's not difficult to uh, make new trusts at the local level where there are people uh, who can manage the temple you need some people with money there you need some people with expertise of various kinds not just administrative or financial expertise but about agama shastra about worship about practices about religion all those and that is available it is largely a matter of constituting those things and doing it i am sure uh, people will learn a lot as they go along but what we have is a vested interest and also some kind of a confusion for instance i know the rss thinks that just as there is a gurdwara act there should be a hindu act to administer most hindu temples so there are problems with our uh, so called uh, so called uh, uh, advocates of hindu interest who do who have very little experience and understanding of culture but it is high time that they work out something you cannot wait for any uh, for much time in another 10 or 15 years uh, three fourth of the land of every hindu temple would be gone let me assure you whether old or ancient or modern even in cities like delhi hindu temples are being uh, uh, besieged by all kinds of occupation around them 
which is eventually going to destroy them. And then hundreds and thousands of acres of land of uh, old temples like Tirupati, etc. It has been taken away by the governments. 